listening to Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today, Brett Easton Ellis' writing, as we conclude American Psycho. I know I offered a lot of different analysis of Patrick's character in the past few episodes, and really, just crack the surface. So, in order... To really delve into Patrick Bateman, I would have to do at least 10 episodes of this podcast. I'm not about to do that, and I was looking over the chapters that I had marked for today's episode and decided, hey, this is not going to work. So what I'm going to do, in lieu of doing the chapter on Paul Owen and then the detective, I'm going to read the chapter into the 80s, and we're going to discuss that because it includes the famous Patrick Bateman monologue about empathy and why he is the way that he is. So before we get into that, I want to talk a bit about the podcast and everything going on with me. So we are coming up on the 50th episode of this podcast, and the next episode is going to be whatever I want it to be, I'm not going to actually read anything. I'm going to talk about my writing, ideas for the podcast, stuff like that. It'll be something that will be worth listening to because it's the 50th episode of the podcast, but it's not going to be about actual writing unless we're talking about my writing. Because in a sense, this podcast is a way for me to get you to go by and read my writing. I mean, I'm not really hiding that fact. As much as I love talking about my favorite writers and their writing, I do want you to go read me. But a podcast is kind of its own entity at the same time, so I do enjoy doing the podcast. I don't always want to do it, but I do it anyway sometimes. So... You can kind of tell when I'm not really in the mood for talking and when I'd rather just get it over with. But I have, at times, taken a week off. I think I've done it once. There have been times where I released more than one episode in a week. That was really early on this year. And to get 50 episodes in a year when I do on average, an episode a week, and I started in late February. That's not bad. So, what can we really gather from this podcast? What what can we conclude after 50 episodes? Well, I'll get more than into that after the 50th episode, of course, but it is kind of crazy because I started before everything really shut down because, because of COVID-19, And life was a lot different. But what I primarily remember about doing this podcast early on is back in March when I first started working from home, I was doing this in a different room because my desk was in the spare bedroom. And my wife and I would walk outside for exercise, which we're not doing right now. And we watched that bizarre love show where all the British people were on an island with the Siri knockoff. So that's that's primarily what I remember about early COVID and the podcast. 
throw in some Tiger King and you've got it. But now that I'm finishing up American Psycho, I have a lot of different authors that I could get into. I am thinking about doing some writers from the hashtag writing community. I don't think I'm going to give more than one episode per book for those just because I'm more familiar with American Psycho than I am with someone that I know from Twitter and their book. And with Zev Good's All About the Benjamins, that book was really difficult to dissect in one episode. So I ended up doing three episodes. I could have done a lot more on that book because it's very complex and well-written. But I'm going to get in this chapter of American Psycho, and hopefully you will tune in next week when I talk about all the different shit and the future of the podcast. So let's get into the end of the 1980s. This is on page 371. The smell of blood works its way into my dreams, which are, for the most part, terrible. On an ocean liner that create that catches fire, witnessing volcanic eruptions in Hawaii, the violent deaths of most of the inside traders at Solomon, James Robinson doing something bad to me, finding myself back at boarding school, then at Harvard, the dead walk among the living. The dreams are an endless reel of car wrecks and disaster footage, electric chairs and grisly suicides, syringes and mutilated pinup girls, flying saucers, marble jacuzzis, pink peppercorns. When I wake up in a cold sweat, I have to turn on the widescreen television to block out the construction sounds that continue throughout the day. Rising up from somewhere, a, mo- a month ago was the anniversary of Elvis Presley's death. Football games flash by, the sound turned off. I can hear the answering machine click once, its volume lowered, then twice. All summer long, Madonna cries out to us, Life is a mystery. Everyone must stand alone. When I'm moving down Broadway to meet Jean, my secretary for brunch in front of Tower Records, a college student with a clipboard asks me to name the saddest song I know. I tell him without pausing, you can't always get what you want by the Beatles. Um, does this infuriate anyone out there listening to know that Patrick Bateman is unaware that you can't always get what you want as a Rolling Stone song when he pretends to know so much about music? So, this opening monologue here, Smell of Blood Works Its Way Into My Dreams, he gives this whole detail about his dreams basically being episodic and flashes of different terrible disasters. And he briefly mentions the fact that he went to boarding school in Harvard. You get the sense that Patrick Bateman is not very connected to his family, and so he didn't really have a strong foundation as to how to function in society, how to empathize with people. He just went to school and had expectations of him from his parents. And when I was reading Rules of Attraction, I got the sense that Sean Bateman was actually closer 
to his father than Patrick Bateman was to the father. And that doesn't mean that Sean Bateman and their father were particularly close, just closer than him and Patrick. And Patrick seems to be sort of obligated to care about his parents, but he doesn't. He just gives off that impression to people who know him, but I don't think he really cares. And it's that lack of love in his life when he was growing up that solidified his psychosis, in a sense. And as he progresses and gets deeper and deeper into that psychosis, his regard for reality diminishes. And you could say that his need for fitting in and order and being very precise about the way that he looks, the way that people perceive him, that's his only way of grounding himself in reality. So when he gets deeper and deeper into this fantasy about killing people, he's sort of acting out on all the rage and all the sadness that is built up in him from no love in his life. He doesn't love Evelyn, and and Evelyn doesn't love him. We've established that. And I don't feel like his parents ever loved him. They probably had him because that's what you do. You get married and you have kids. And then you send them off to school because you're rich, and you want them to get the best education, and la-di-da, but... It didn't really work for Patrick because he doesn't even know that the Rolling Stones did you can't always go what you want. That is a very basic thing. It it shows that his interest in music is only about impressing other people. You can't always go what you want is not really a sad song. And on top of that, it shows how... He's trying to find some sort of deeper meaning without even knowing what the song actually means. Him saying that that's the saddest song ever and then misnaming it as a Beatles song, well, that kind of tells you everything you need to know about Patrick Bateman. If you met him on the street, there wouldn't be anything particularly remarkable about him other than the way that he looks. So... Patrick fails to realize that. People don't perceive him as a cool, well-put-together guy. He's just another bozo on Wall Street. We stop at an outdoor cafe, Nowheres, on the Upper West Side, debating which movie to see. If there are any museum exhibits we should attend, maybe just walk. She suggests the zoo. I'm nodding mindlessly. Jean is looking good, like she's been working out and she's wearing a gilt lame jacket and velvet shorts by Matsuda. I'm imagining myself on television in a commercial for a new product, wine cooler, tanning lotion, sugarless gum, and I'm moving in jump cut, walking along a beach, the film is black and white, purposefully scratched, eerie, vague pop music from the mid-60s accompanies the footage. It echoes, sounds as if it's coming from a calope. Now I'm looking into the camera. Now I'm holding up the product. A new moose, tennis shoes. Now my hair is windblown. 
then it's day, then night, then day again, and then it's night. Okay, did you ever see those old Saturday night live commercials like the dog fucking the dude at the pool? These meaningless commercials for cologne and shit. It, they don't really mean anything. They're selling sex and this idea of being cool. There was this old commercial that came out in the mid-2000s, I want to say, that had Dennis Hopper in black and white just sitting by a pool. It wasn't really advertising anything. There was a Victoria's Secret commercial with Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan has nothing to do with Victoria's Secret. It only aired one time that I recall, and my mother said, because nobody wears Victoria's Secret like Bob Dylan. She's full of great zingers like that, folks. I'll have an iced decaf au lait, Jean tells the waiter. I'll have a decapitated coffee also. I mean, decaffeinated. I glance over at Jean worried, but she just smiles emptily at me. A Sunday time sits on the table between us. We discuss plans for dinner tonight, maybe. Someone who looks like Taylor Preston walks by, waves at me. I lower my Ray-Bans, wave back. Someone on bike, a bike pedals past. I ask a busboy for water. A waiter arrives instead, and after that, a dish containing two scoops of sorbet, cilantro, lemon, and vodka lime are brought to the table that I didn't hear Jean order. Want a bite, she asks. I'm on a diet, I say, but thank you. You don't need to lose any weight, she says. You're kidding, right? You look great, very fit. You can always be thinner, I mumble, staring at the traffic, distracted by something. I don't know. Look better. Well, maybe we shouldn't go out to dinner, she says. I don't want to ruin your willpower. No, it's all right, I say. I'm not very good at controlling in any way. Remember when Evelyn said to Patrick that he could always be thinner and look better? Patrick, seriously, I'll do whatever you want. If you don't want to go to dinner, we won't. I mean, it's okay, I stress. You shouldn't fawn over him. I mean, me, okay? Patrick disconnects from himself. He's seeing this scene from the outside. He refers to himself as him rather than me. I just want to know what you want to do, she says. To live happily ever after, right? I say sarcastically. That's what I want. I stare at her hard for maybe half a minute before turning away. This quiets her. After a while, she orders a beer. It's hot on the street. Come on, smile, she urges. You have no reason to be so sad. I know, but it's tough to smile these days. At least, I find it hard to. I'm not used to it, I guess. I don't know. That's why people need each other, she says gently, trying to make eye contact while spooning the not-inexpensive sorbet into her mouth. Some don't, I clear my throat self-consciously. Or, well, people compensate. They adjust. People can get accustomed to anything, right? Habit does things to people. Another long pause. Confused, she says. I don't know. I guess. But one still has to maintain a ratio of more good things than bad in this world. I mean, right? 
A blast of music from a passing cab. Madonna again says, Life is a mystery. Everyone must stand alone. Startled by the laughter at the table next to ours, I cock my head and hear someone admit, Sometimes what you wear to the office makes all the difference. And then Jean says something, and I ask her to repeat it. Haven't you ever wanted to make someone happy, she asks. What? I ask. Jean? Shyly, she repeats herself. Haven't you ever wanted to make someone happy? I stare at her. A cold, distant wave of fright washes over me, dousing myself. I clear my throat again and, trying to speak with great purposefulness, tell her, I was at Sugar Reef the other night, that Caribbean place on Lower East Side. You know it. Who are you with, she interrupts. Uh, Evan, Evan McGillan. Oh. Anyway, I saw some guy in the men's room, a total Wall Street guy, wearing a one-button Visus wool nylon suit by Lucani Soprani, a cotton shirt by Gitman Brothers, a silk tie by Zegna, and I mean, I recognize this guy, a broker named Eldridge. I'd seen him at Harry's and Oba and Duplex and Alex Goes to Camp, all the places, but when I went in after him, I saw he was writing something on the wall above the urinal he was standing at. When he saw me come in, he stopped writing, put away the Mont Blanc pen. He zipped up his pants, said hello, Henderson, to me. Checked his hair in the mirror, coughed like he was nervous or something, and left the room. Anyway, I went over to use the urinal, and I leaned over to read what he wrote. Which was, Jean asked, Kill all yuppies. He's going on this monologue to Jean because she's now his audience. He's detailing the way this guy is dressed. I'm not even sure that Zegna or Gitman Brothers or any of this shit actually exist, you know, and certainly no place called Alex Goes to Camp. But he's detailing these things as if they matter. And... Gene probably doesn't care what the guy was wearing. But it's interesting that he goes to this great length to describe this guy, who's obviously put a lot of thought into the way he, he looks, and he writes over the urinal, kill all yuppies. So here's my question. Was there actually a guy? Was it? Perhaps Patrick Bateman, who wrote Kill All Yuppies Above the Urinal because of self-hatred, self-loathing. He doesn't like being a yuppie. He doesn't like other yuppies, except for maybe Tim Price, which may or may not be a homosexual attraction or envy. What do we make of this long bit of dialogue and... Gene's not really adding anything to the scene other than being, I don't know, a sounding board. Because Gene is tolerant of Patrick, and she actually listens to what he says, but he's not interested in hearing anything she has to say. But he stands her because she listens, and no one else really does. No one really cares about what Patrick Bateman has to say. 
listen, Patrick, we need to talk about something, or at least I need to talk about something. And he interrupts her by going on a monologue to the audience. Where there was nature and earth, life and water, I saw a desert landscape that was unending, resembling some sort of crater so devoid of reason and light and spirit that the mind could not grasp it on any sort of conscious level, and if you came close, the mind would reel back, unable to take it in. It was a vision so clear and real and vital to me that in its purity, I was almost abstract. This was what I could understand. This was how I lived my life, what I constructed my movement around, how I dealt with the tangible. This was the geography around which my reality revolved. It did not occur to me ever that people were good, or that a man was capable of change, or that the world could be a better place through one's taking pleasure in a feeling, or a look, or a gesture, or, or, or receiving another person's love or kindness. Nothing was affirmative. The term generosity of spirit applied to nothing was a cliché, was some kind of bad joke. Sex is mathematics. Individuality, no longer an issue. What does intelligence signify? Define reason. Desire. Meaningless. Intelligent is not a cure. Justice is dead. Fear, recrimination, innocence, sympathy, guilt, waste, failure, grief, were things emotions that no one really felt anymore. Reflection is useless. The world is senseless. Evil is its own permanence. God is not alive. Love cannot be trusted. Surface, surface, surface was all that anyone found meaning in. This was civilization as I saw it, colossal and jagged. That bit of writing is why I love Brett Easton Ellis. And anyone who picks up this book and does not really delve into it and see these little monologues of just great prose really delving into what it all means and questioning it all. This isn't just Patrick Bateman. This is also Brett Easton Ellis. What is he trying to gather? Well, the world is obsessed with what we look like, of what we appear to be. And if it's evil serving as the only permanence in this world, and God is not alive, then God, as we refer to him, is also surface. We want people to know that we believe in God. We want people to know that we believe in our salvation. Sex is mathematics. Individuality no longer an issue. These are things that make the world go round, and yet none of them really matter if we don't poke beneath the surface. Is everyone collectively interested in what is beyond how we look or how we appear to be. Patrick Bateman doesn't seem to think so. So, do we feel like we can relate to Patrick Bateman at this point? 
I definitely feel that this is one of the most human moments for him in this whole book. And it gets better, folks. So, what does Gene have to say after all this? I don't remember who it was you were talking to. It doesn't matter. What does is that you were very forceful, yet very sweet, I guess. I knew then that she places her spoon down, and I'm not watching her. I'm looking out at the taxis moving up Broadway, yet can't stop things from unraveling because Gene says the following. A lot of people seem to have lost touch with life, and I don't want to be among them. I don't want to get bruised. I think I'm nodding. I've learned what it's like to be alone, and I think I'm in love with you. She says this last part quickly, forcing it out. Almost superstitiously, I turn toward her, sipping an Evian. Without thinking and smiling, I say, I love someone else. As if this film has speeded up, she laughs immediately, looks quickly away, down, embarrassed. I'm sorry, gosh. But, I add quickly, you shouldn't be afraid. She looks back at me, swollen with hope. Something can be done about it, I say. Then, not knowing what I'd say, why I'd say that, I modify the statement, telling her straight on that something I can't, I don't know. I've thrown away a lot of time to be with you, so it's not like I don't care. She nods mutely. You should never mistake affection for passion, I warn her. It can be not good. It can get you into, well, trouble. She's not saying anything, and I can suddenly sense her sadness flat and calm like a daydream. What are you trying to say? Nothing. I'm just letting you know that appearances can be deceiving. She stares at the, the time stacked in heavy folds on the table. A breeze barely causes it to flutter. Why are you telling me this? Tactfully, almost touching her hand, but stopping myself, I tell her, I just want to avoid any future misconnections. I'm... I, I'm not, she says. I just want to know if you're disappointed in me for admitting this. You don't know much about me, do you? I ask. I know enough. Oh, let's just drop this. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I want to know more. Are you sure? Patrick. I know my life would be much emptier without you in it. And I I just can't. I can't pretend these feelings don't exist. So Patrick has spent this whole book stating he's pretty sure that Jean is in love with him. And it turns out he's right because she admits it here. Jean knows that at this point she can't take it back. She's gone over the line in a sense. Because he's not returning her sentiment. He's trying to talk, talk her out of it. But at the same time, he's leading her on. And this is the conversation that takes place before this monologue that is in the film. It is split up into two sections in the film. The first part of it is during the opening scene where Patrick Bateman is doing his morning routine. 
and the second half is in the final scene of the movie. Are you ready, folks? Let's go. There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I am simply not there. It is hard for me to make sense on any given level. Myself is fabricated an aberration. I am a non-contingent human being. My personality is sketchy and unformed. My heartlessness goes deep in its persistence. My conscious... My pity, my hopes, disappeared a long time ago, probably at Harvard, if they ever did exist. There are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it, I have now surpassed. I still, though, hold on to one single bleak truth. No one is safe. Nothing is redeemed. Yet, I am blameless. Each model of human behavior must be assumed to have some validity. Is evil something you are, or is it something you do? My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others, and I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, and I have countless times... In just about every act I've committed, in coming face to face with these truths, there is no catharsis. I gain no deeper knowledge about myself, no new understanding can be extracted from my telling. There has been no reason for me to tell you any of this. This confession has meant nothing. So, he just addressed the audience. He referred to us as you, and... After all of this, he has to wonder why he has gone into detail about anything in this book. Why has he told us anything in this book? Why are we reading this conversation between him and Gene? And why is he coming to this conclusion now? Part of this, and the movie misses this, is that Gene is showing him the first bit of empathy and love that he has felt for a long, long time, if ever. Who in their lives has ever genuinely loved Patrick Bateman? Because he's never loved anybody before. There's this kind of, it's not a theory, but there's this idea that Patrick eventually marries Jean, and there are these emails that went out around that were not written by Brett Easton Ellis that were partially promotion for the movie American Psycho. And Patrick talks about being married to Gene and having a son and la-di-da. But do you really think that Patrick would marry Gene? She's the only person to ever really love him. So it would make sense, but he's incapable of loving her in return. And in a sense, he feels that Loving her would be the same as, or pretending to love her, would be the same as driving a nail through the back of her head. I'm asking Jean, how many people in this world are like me? She pauses, carefully answers. 
I don't think anyone. Let me rephrase the question. Wait, how does my hair look? Fine. Okay, let me rephrase the question. Why do you like me? Why, she asked. Yes, why? Well, you're concerned with others, she says tentatively. That's a very rare thing in what, she stops again, is a, I guess, a hedonistic world. This is, Patrick, you're embarrassing me. Go on, please, I want to know. You're sweet. Sweetness is sexy, I don't know. But it's, so is mystery. Mister, you're, you're mysterious. And you're considerate. And I think shy men are romantic. How many people in this world are like me? I ask again. Do I really appear like that? Patrick, I wouldn't lie. No, of course you wouldn't. But I think that, I think you know how they say no two snowflakes are ever alike. She nods. Well, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of snowflakes are alike. And I think a lot of people are alike too. She nods again. Appearances can be deceiving. No, she says. I don't think they are deceiving. They're not. Sometimes, Jean, the line separating appearance, what you see in reality, what you don't, become blurred. That's not true. That's simply not true. Really? I didn't used to think so. Maybe ten years ago I didn't, but I do now. What do you mean, I ask? You're used to? A flood of reality. I get an odd feeling that this is a crucial moment in my life, and I'm startled by the suddenness of what I guess passes for an epiphany. There is nothing of value I can offer her. For the first time, I see Jean as uninhibited. She seems stronger, less controllable. Wanting to take me into a new and unfamiliar land, the dreaded uncertainty of a totally different world. I sense she wants to rearrange my life in a significant way. Her eyes tell me this, and though I see truth in them, I also know that one day, sometime very soon, she too will be locked in the rhythm of all my insanity. All I have to do is keep silent about this and not bring it up. Yet she weakens me. It's almost as if she's making the decision about who I am, and in my own stillborn, willful way, I can admit to feeling a pang, something tightening inside, and before I can stop it, I find myself almost dazzled and moved that I might have the capacity to accept, though not return, her love. I wonder if even now, right here in Nowhere's, she can see the darkening clouds behind my eyes lifting. And though the coldness I have always felt leaves me, the numbness doesn't and probably never will, this realization will probably lead to nothing. This didn't change anything. I imagine her smelling clean, like tea. Patrick, talk to me. Don't be so upset. I think it's time for me to take a good look at the world I've created. I came upon a half gram of cocaine in my armoire last night. What did you do with it, she asked. I threw it away. I threw it all away. I wanted to do it, 
but I threw it away. She squeezes my hand. When I find the strength to look back at her, it strikes me how useless, boring, physically beautiful she really is. And the question, why not end up with her, floats into my line of vision. An answer, she has a better body than most other girls I know. Another one, everyone is interchangeable anyway. One more. It doesn't really matter. She sips before me, sullen but hopeful, characterless, about to dissolve into tears. I squeeze her hand back, moved, no touched by her ignorance of evil. She has one test to pass. Do you own a briefcase? I ask her. No, I don't. Evelyn carries a briefcase, I mention. She does? What about a Philofax? A smaller one? Designer? No. I sigh, then take her hand, small and hard in mine. And in the southern deserts of Sudan, the heat rises in airless waves. Thousands upon thousands of men, women, children roam throughout the vast bushland, desperately seeking food, ravaged, starving, leaving a trail of dead, emaciated bodies. They eat weeds and leaves and lily pads. Stumbling from village to village, dying slowly, inexorably. A gray morning in the miserable desert. Grit flies through the air. A child with a face like a black moon lies in the sand, scratching at his throat. Cones of dust rising. Flying across land like whirling tops. No one can see the sun. The child is covered with sand, almost dead. Eyes unblinking, grateful. Stop and imagine for an instant. A world where someone is grateful for something. None of the haggard pay attention as they file by. Dazed and in pain? No, there is no one who pays attention, who notices the boy's agony and smiles as if holding a secret. The boy opens and closes his cracked, chapped mouth soundlessly. There's a school bus in the distance somewhere, and somewhere else above that in space, a spirit rises, a door opens, it asks why. A home for the dead, an infinity, it hangs in a void. Time limps by, love and sadness rush through the boy. Okay. I am dimly aware of the phone ringing somewhere. In the cafe on Columbus, countless numbers, hundreds of people, maybe thousands, have walked by our table during my silence. Patrick, Jean says. Someone with a baby stroller stops at the corner and purchases a Dove bar. The baby stares at Jean and me. We stare back. It's really weird, and I'm experiencing a, a spontaneous kind of internal sensation. I feel I'm moving toward as well as away from something, and anything is possible. This book raises more questions than it answers. So, I have nothing but questions about that whole chapter. And, you know, I've, I've had that chapter dog-eared for a long time. Probably since I first read it when I was 17. And I've pulled it out and I've read that little monologue so many different times, but... The context of the conversation where Patrick is 
speaking to Gene and she's revealing that she loves him. Well, what what's to conclude? Patrick is experiencing a sense of euphoria. He's looking at everything from the outside and he's realizing it. This book is not about murder. It's about what it is to be human, what it is to be an adult, what it is to be a man. And the reason why it offers only questions and no answers is because there's no answer to any of those questions. And the assertion that Brady Sinellis makes is that everything is surface. So how do you really know someone? How do you break beyond that surface? Because Jean's perception of Patrick Bateman is fucking wrong. She thinks he's shy and that he's thoughtful and sweet. None of that's true. His interactions with people beyond what's going on in his head, he's not a nice person. Everything about him is self-serving. So Jean has created an image of him that is false. She's misleading herself. Why? Well, just like him, she's looking at the surface. But unlike Patrick, where Patrick is interpreting the surface and not the depth of someone, Jean is trying to create depth from the surface. But her perception of him is skewed. Even when he's an asshole to her, she thinks that there's something beyond the way that he acts, that he's secretly contemplative and thoughtful. But the only thing going on in his head is violence and sex and what people are wearing, how to impress people. He wants to be the smartest, coolest guy in the room. And yet Gene in a sense, is trying to break him down and make him more empathetic, but that's an impossible task. But he looks at her in a way that he's never looked at her before, and he realizes that he's got this beautiful woman who's been around him for so long, and he's never really taken the time to appreciate her. And this realization has made him reflect on his whole life and existence itself. Because he's never had to think this hard about anything. So, beyond his thoughts on the world, this chapter is about how Patrick Bateman finally realizes that he's never loved anyone, and that no one's ever loved him, and that thought breaks him. Because... He's been searching for a way to make himself perfect. And he knows that that's impossible. And he's going to do his best to ignore that realization from now on, I really do feel. So, we've gone over American Psycho. And I hope that I have given you something entertaining or some food for thought regarding this book. I don't know what your perception of this book was before you listened to the podcast, but I can tell you this book is is not 
just a violent bunch of bullshit. Okay? So, I hope that you read it. You appreciate it. You can skip the violent parts if you want. They're not really integral to the book. And maybe you can appreciate the film in a new way because the film is great, but it condenses a very complex novel. So it's sort of like filming Ulysses. This has been Patrick Attaway, and I know, I don't hope, I know that you're going to have the most amazing week ever. Happy reading.